for joining us today. We are looking at our 23rd uh, chapter of the story, and over the last number of months, uh, we have been working through the story, and the story is basically um, looking at the Bible, not from a series of um, two or three stories or dozens and dozens of stories, but understanding that the Bible is one consecutive story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And uh, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But today, um, we are in chapter 23 of the story, and it's called Jesus' Ministry Begins. And so we're going to look at a text um, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And uh, I am going to read that text for you, and this is what it says. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil led him up on a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, said to him rather, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, all of it will be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led Jesus or led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray together. Father, again, we give you, we give pause today to thank you for your love and your generous expression of that in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And again, for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes everything that you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it possible, available, and applicable to our lives and so, Lord, we pray this morning as we look at your word that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand. And, Lord, that you would help us in our daily life, especially in these times, Lord, to show what it means in tangible, meaningful ways, what it means to be Christ followers, to be Christians, to be the disciples of Jesus. And so we ask these mercies today, and we ask them in Christ's name and for his name's sake, amen. Amen. Over the past several months, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we have been looking at the story, and the Bible tells the story of God's plan of redemption. It gives us the, the redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation, how that 
We are told in chapters 1 to 11 how things came unglued and things fell apart in God's creation. And from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Revelation 22 is the story of God's redemption. In other words, how God is trying and was um, working out a plan to actually get us back to him who is the source. And of course, in that upper story of God's big plan is our lower story, how you and I fit into God's overarching plan. Now, God's timing is perfect. While the world that we live in is experiencing what seems to be called or looks like wartime measures in a global pandemic, God's story brings us today, as it did last week, to focus on the central person, the central figure of God's project, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at Luke's gospel today, and and Luke is an interesting storyteller because he begins a story of the life of Jesus as with the birth narrative, the birth story, how he was born, and he goes from the time that he was born up till age eight, and then Luke fast forwards. We have nothing from from uh, eight days of uh, of age. Um, to 12 years of age where Jesus, the story is told by Luke how Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his mom and dad and uh, they leave and go home and there's a big um, uh, group of them that are making their way home and they don't know that Jesus is stayed behind in Jerusalem and they go back and find them and he's talking to the scholars and the teachers, the Jewish scholars and teachers in the temple. And we have that story. And then Luke fast forwards again, uh, 18 years. We have nothing about Jesus' life from age 12 to age 30. And then Luke tells us this story. And that brings us then to the water, Jesus' water baptism. Now, Jesus' water baptism is about, in, about First of all, about an interaction between Jesus and John, and it goes something like this. John, actually the Gospel of John, the writer of John, not John the Baptist, but the Gospel writer, John says that um, John the Baptist is out baptizing in the Jordan, and as he's baptizing one day, Jesus walks along the bank of the Jordan, and John says to the people there, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he is pointing to Jesus. Jesus comes down, and he wants to be baptized by John, but John the Baptist is reluctant, and he resists baptizing Jesus because John recognizes that Jesus is so much more important than he is, and that Jesus needs to baptize John, not the other way around. But the other thing that is true of this interaction is Luke chapter 3, verse 3 tells us that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus had no sin, that he was without sin. So the question that we might ask is why then did Jesus have to be baptized? Well, there's a couple of answers to that question, and and the first one is simply this, that Jesus is baptized in water because he is identifying with us. You see, we need to understand that God never asks us to do something or to do anything 
that he hasn't done first and done before us. But the second reason in which Jesus is um, being baptized is because Jesus is setting an example for us. And Jesus is going to ask every follower of his to be water baptized. It's part of that obedience thing. It's part of the command. And so he is setting sort of the, the agenda for us. He is setting the example that we as his Christ followers should be baptized. And that brings us then to the baptismal scene. And the baptismal scene is a very interesting scene because Luke tells us this in Luke chapter 3 verses 21 to 23 just before the text we read a moment ago at the beginning. He tells us this, that John baptizes Jesus, Jesus goes down in the water, he comes up out of the water and some things happen, three things. The first thing is this, is that the Son of God, Jesus, who is identifying with us, who is setting the example for us, he stands in the water. He is standing in the Jordan River, and then the Holy Spirit comes and in the form of a dove and settles on his shoulder. And then Luke tells us that the Father, God the Father, speaks out loud, audibly, and says, that this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a number of things going on there. First of all, we see that the triune God is their Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there at the baptismal scene. But we also understand this, that what this text is trying to remind us, and it reminds us through the Gospels over and over again, that Jesus Christ is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the triune God, but Jesus Christ is God, and that's very important. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus was about 30 years of age when he begins his ministry, and the, the baptismal scene is really the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. And that brings us to our text that we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, to what I have called an unusual phrase. It says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, it's an unusual phrase, and we're going to break it up so that we can look at it. First of all, it says that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Now, would it not make sense that if Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, that he be directed to go where people are? where he can help people who need help, and would it not make sense that Jesus would go to where people are to start his ministry? But no. No, his ministry starts in the wilderness. And that's an unusual phrase because there's nobody in the wilderness except Jesus. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness is to be tested. Because before God uses any of us, and Jesus included, he tests us. In other words, what is true of Jesus is true of us. And what is true of us is true of Jesus because Jesus is one of us. Jesus is like us. 
Now Hebrews chapter seven, verses seven to nine says this about Jesus. That during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission Son though he was, he learned obedience. He learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, God is as interested in what happens in us than what happens through us. Now, the other unusual phrase is this one, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness or into the desert? It does seem a little unusual that God would do that. Now, now we could talk about we could talk about the fact that, you know, who we are alone when nobody else is watching, that's who we really are. We could talk about the reality that eventually to know who we are, that we need to face ourselves, and the only way we can do that is with and through extended solitude. Or, or we could talk about the importance of getting away from it all and getting some time alone. And not all that may be true and all that is good, but that's not what our text says. We read in our text that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now, when I was reading this text, all of a sudden it dawned on me, I always assumed, and I don't know why I assumed this, I always assumed that Jesus fasted for 40 days and then the devil came at the end of the 40 days and tempted him. But the Bible implies that for the entire 40 days in the desert fasting, that he was tempted by the devil. So I'm thinking to myself that this must be an, have been incredibly excruciating for Jesus for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. But why 40 days? Uh, we know, of course, that the Bible tells us that the flood, that during the flood it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, we know that the Bible tells us that the 12 spies who went in and did reconnaissance of the promised land were there for 40 days. We know that Israel's nation family wandered in the wilderness in the desert for 40 years. We are also told that when they finally got into the promised land that they were under the, under the Philistines for 40 years. Goliath taunted Israel's armies for 40 days. And Jonah preached to Nineveh that Nineveh would be destroyed if they didn't repent in 40 days. Now, why is 40 so important. Well, we could talk about the number 40 and its significance and its importance in biblical numerology. But 40 days, 40 days is significant because 40 days is long enough. It's long enough. 
Matter of fact, I was actually reading uh, somewhere that um, doctors say that a human being can fast for 40 days, but 40 days is the limit, and anything after that, we actually begin to destroy muscles in the body. But there's also this. Jesus experienced temptation in the desert. He experienced temptation like every other human person. Temptation, just like us, like you and like me. And also, Jesus experienced temptation not like anyone else. 40 days harassed or harassed by the the devil. But with this one important thing, Jesus was tempted by the devil harassed by the devil for 40 days, and he never once caved to the temptation. He never once gave in to the temptation. Now, I don't know about you, but that could never be said about me. But listen to what we read in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. And yet, his temptation is from the same source, the devil. Now, I probably don't need to remind us of this, but I want to just state that I hope we all know that temptation is not sin. It only becomes sin when we actually give in to the temptation. But temptation is not sin. But our text tells us this. Jesus was led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then it twice says that the devil led him to tempt him. You see, the Spirit of God leads us into the wilderness at times to build us up. But the devil leads us to temptation in order to tear us down. And that brings us then to the main purpose of our text, Jesus' temptation. Jesus experienced temptation in the same three ways that we are often tested and tempted. Somebody said that all of our temptations, yours and mine, in life can be divided into three categories. Now, I don't know if that is correct or not, but what we, I do know is this, that Jesus was tempted first with a hunger for food or for sustenance or for nourishment. Our text says that he ate nothing during those days and at the end of them was hungry and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now the very first thing the devil does with Jesus is this. He tries to get Jesus to second guess who he is. And then he tries to convince Jesus to prove who he is, if you are the son of God. You and I, as Christians, we hear it this way. If you were a real Christian, 
If you were a better Christian, or we might hear it like this, if you were more spiritual, and then we can add in whatever it applies. But sometimes we can be like this toward God. Hopefully not consciously, but unconsciously. We think, or we may even say it out loud, if God is sovereign, if God is all-powerful, if God is in control of everything, then why doesn't God step in and solve this problem with COVID-19? Now, that's a good question. But here's how it works. You see, when God created the world, he put laws in place. And those laws that are in place, he allows those laws to continue because those laws are affected by human will and volition and our choice to choose. Now, when God steps in and interrupts one of those laws, it's called a miracle or divine intervention or a supernatural event. But more often than not, God does not interrupt the laws that he has put in place. He allows things to go along as he has ordered them to be and the laws that he has put in place. Now, what's interesting, though, there's a bit of a contradiction in us because when things are bad and things go, or there's a crisis or there's a, a something goes really wrong, we often say, you know, if God is God, why doesn't he step in and fix this? Why doesn't he stop it? But why don't we say that when we're making our own choices? When we're making our own decisions, even when they're bad decisions, because we don't say that because we don't want God to infringe upon our freedom to choose. But more often than not, God does not step in and interrupt or break into his laws that he set in place. But what God, God does promise is this. I will walk with you through this. And this is the promise. Now, back to the temptation and back to our text. I think that we can certainly identify with this temptation for uh, hunger for food or nourishment or sustenance. The last seven days certainly has proven that. I mean, we are hearing about panic buying and about hoarding. Sadly, some people are actually taking advantage of the situation. As I was told, or I um, um, actually I, I listened to an interview about one couple um, who went to Costco and bought up all of the um, wipes that they could find. And uh, they spent apparently $80,000 buying all of the wipes that they could get their hands on, and then they sold them on Amazon. And the guy in the interview said that he had made $100,000. But the other part of that story is that when Amazon found out what they were doing, they actually banned them for life. We have heard all about the bathroom tissue and the paper towel panic, and there's so many jokes to be said about that, but we'll leave it. 
And maybe we have seen the empty shelves at the grocery store. I looked, saw one uh, paper this past week and from Toronto and in big block letters on the front page was the warning, stop hoarding. You see, the, this is a variation of this first temptation for hunger to, a hunger for food, a hunger for sustenance, a hunger for nourishment. But it's not that we need more food than we have. Sometimes we just want more than we actually need. And this is the opposite side of what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, chapter 6. And, and it's a big text and it's a long text, but I really think we need to read it because we need to be reminded of these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own now those are incredibly contradictory words to what we are seeing in society over the last week around the issues of food and all of that. So the question is this. Here's the question. So who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to follow? Who are we going to trust? You see, the words that we just read from Matthew's gospel, you know, they're nice words. Jesus' words are nice words. They're nice words in our heads. But the question is, are we willing to pattern our lives after those words? That's a whole other matter, isn't it? This past week, I was reading Psalm 78 and just a little bit of background about Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is the, um, <clears throat> is the reiteration or the retelling of how God cared for the people of Israel, Israel's nation family while they were in the desert for 40 years. And the question that Israel's nation family asked was this in Psalm 78, 19. Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? 
And it goes on down further in the psalm in verse 22. It talks about how we open the doors of heaven, how we rain down manna for the people to eat, how it is described as they ate the grain of heaven and they ate the bread of angels. I was thinking about this, and all of a sudden I remembered a text from the most familiar psalm in the entire Bible, where it says in Psalm 23, So Psalm 78 says, they spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? And Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus and our second temptation is the desire for control, for power, we might say. Now, I think that most of us are fairly aware of the fact that while we want control and we want power, especially over our own lives, our own decisions, and where our lives are going, I think we all know that, as we've been told, that control is an illusion. And I think that if this week has taught us anything, it has taught us how little power and how little control we have in our world. And maybe part of our frustration and anxiousness is we want control over our situation and we cannot and we do not have it. This brings us then to Jesus, how Jesus responds to the devil's temptation. And Jesus responds to the devil's temptation with a dependence on God. You see, Jesus understands our uncertain times. He understands our frustration at the state of the world. He understands our worry at every cough that we feel and every one that we hear around us. He understands our wondering if we're going to get toilet paper and whether or not we can actually go out and get it. He knows our concerns, your concerns about what you're going to do with your little children over these next two weeks and maybe a few weeks after that. And here's why he knows, because not just because he's God, but because Jesus is one of us. He grew up in a Roman-occupied Israel, and every day was a day filled with uncertainty. His mother was ostracized and because he, they looked at her as having a baby at a wedlock. His earthly father, Joseph, passed away with some time around between Jesus was 12 and 30, so he was without, without a father. Jesus knows our uncertainty. He knows your uncertainty. He knows my uncertainty. And he knows it because he identifies with our uncertainty. But Jesus' response, Jesus' response to the devil's temptation, Jesus responds with this, God is enough for me. Could something bad happen to me, to us, to you? Maybe. But God is enough. Do I have enough today? Not sure. But God is enough. 
Am I safe right now? I don't know. But God is enough for me. God is enough for us. He's enough for me and he's enough for you. And that leads us finally to Jesus and our third temptation, which is a temptation for security, for safety. It's interesting how Jesus answers the devil. Each and every time there's a temptation, Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. It's interesting that he doesn't rebuke the devil, but he reiterates, he repeats the scriptures. So what about us? Where are we spending most of our time during this crisis? Are we spending most of our time reading the news feeds? Because every time I turn on a device, the news feeds come up and everything is COVID-19. Do we spend most of our time reading articles about the crisis? Do we spend most of the time on social media listening to, to all that people are saying, even people that are giving misinformation? And are we reading the Bible? Now, don't misunderstand me. We need to be informed, and we need to be in touch with what is going on, and we need to know what's happening. Ignorance is not bliss, but we need balance. Because sometimes worry usurps our faith because we fail to access the source. Now, before COVID-19, most of us had the excuse that, you know, we're just too busy. We never read the Bible and we never prayed because we were just too busy. <clears throat> I think one of the positive outcomes of COVID-19 is that we might have some more time on our hands. And during this time, I would like to encourage us to utilize and take advantage of this time. Time to reflect on our lives. To reflect on our priorities and maybe reflect on the possibility that we need to realign our priorities. I think that this is a great time to think, to pray about where we are in regard to our faith and where we are in regard to God's word. I think that this is a great time to meditate, to think about how God might be speaking to us in this time. I'm reminded of the words of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Lord, you establish peace for us. And then Jesus' words, of course, said this, I will never leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then in Hebrews, we're told something similar. And God has said, 
Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mortals do to me? You and I were never alone. And God has a peace that he can lodge deep in our souls, deeper than any crisis or any worry or any threat or any temptation or any fear. And so this morning, this coming week, be informed, know what's going on, but balance that with listening to what God is saying to you in the midst of this, saying to us. Allow his word to shatter the fear, the panic, because he's got us. He's got us. There's a great prayer, and it's not in your notes. You may want to take a screenshot of it if you can. But this is what it says. I want to say this prayer, and then we'll pause and we'll pray together. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep me both outwardly in my body and inwardly in my soul, that I may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We're going to pray together, and I'm going to invite the musicians to come back. And, and what, how I'd like to end our service together this morning is I'd like for them to just play the last song from beginning to end that we ended our worship set with. And so I just want to pause while they're getting in place. Would you just close your eyes with me, and would you just for a moment, no matter how, what the distance is from us, but over and via online and the internet, let's just join our hearts in faith. And maybe this morning I could get you to do something. And if you're in a room of people, maybe you're going to feel uncomfortable with this. But, but just imagine that you're in this room. But what I'd like you to do is just reach out your hand as if you're going to hold somebody's hand. Would you do that as a symbol of joining our faith together? And let's pray. Father, as we imagine holding hands, a sign of being in one accord, a sign of unity, a sign of unison, a sign of being together, of being in agreement. Father, we thank you today for your, again, for your love that you've shown in Jesus that Jesus is one of us, therefore he not only understands our uncertainty, he identifies with our uncertainty. And Father, every day, it seems like we wake up and the first thing we have to see what's going on is what's the damage report. But Father, I pray that you would help us to change our tact. And you would help us, Lord, to take your word and just to begin to read it. And as we read it, 
the Holy Spirit will speak to us about the things that we need to be spoken to about. And Lord, as we read your word and as we meditate on your word and as we take time to think and pray, we can balance out what is happening in our world. And we can hear from you and experience your comfort and experience your peace and to be reminded that God, you are in control, you are sovereign and that you are walking through this crisis with us. And Lord, as we are reaching out to one another today in this moment of the symbol of holding hands, may we just imagine for a moment Jesus slipping in between two of us and taking the hand on either side of him in his nail-scarred hands to Lord to know that you are in the midst of this with us. We give you praise. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.